in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Miss Lizzie Haynes from the great state of Kentucky and Louisville. How you doing, Lizzie? I'm doing great. I am excited to talk about some movies. All right. And to join us, you know, we had a first-time guest on with us. That's exciting. Mr. Jake Morrison from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How you doing, sir? Great. Great. Thanks for having me. I work with Jake, so I hear Jake on, like, Skype or I am all day long. So this is just an extension of the same. So he gets a double dose of me today, so I'm sorry for that. Oscar season is here, and I'm going to ask, what is an acting performance that just really stuck with you, Jake? I mean, it has to be uh, Huey Wong's uh, performance and every, everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> I've heard a lot of really good things about this one, and I need to get around to seeing this one. Yeah, it's a absolutely must-see, my opinion. really has everything in it. <laughs> and Lizzie, how about you? What's one of those blew away acting performances. The first thing that popped in my head was Anthony Hopkins from Silence of the Lambs. I think that his performance, not only did it really stay with me and kind of shake me to my core, it also, I really credit that performance for making me fall in love with psychological thrillers in general and like spiking this thirst for understanding psychology. I just, I think he... That was kind of the like my Morpheus red pill, if you will, into like this whole new world of psychology. I just I loved it. Wow. I wrote the same thing down. That's astounding. So <laughs> there you that's, go. That's a it is yeah, I, I just uh you almost forget that it is Anthony Hopkins. Like, you know, he's an amazing actor, but you just Hannibal's takes on a life of its own. It's just, it, it's it resonated with me so much. All right. And what is the last movie you saw, Jake? Yeah, it was everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> it, I don't know, like you're saying, Lizzie, it's just one of those movies um, uh, that you don't see often as far as the structure goes, the character development, kind of where the story takes you. Yep, and there's clearly recency bias in that last question I asked. Lizzie, how about you? What's the last movie you saw? Last movie I saw, this is going to get so much hate from y'all, meaning... Russell, Dustin, Brian, and Chad, but I saw Valentine's Day. That's the last movie that I watched. I wanted to be festive, and so I watched it, and you know what? I watched it with the critical eye of the Retro Movie Roundtable, knowing you're all's disdain for it, and I, it's it's not that bad. It's not great, uh, but it's I will not... actually agree with you. <laughs> if you listen okay, to the I'm episode... Glad. If you listen to the episode, I was unusually kind to it compared to the others. Dustin and others struggled with it mightily, but um, I 
I maintain it was it was nowhere near the bottom of my rankings last year. I would watch Valentine's Day three times over before approaching Leprechaun again. So. I mean, I would watch Leprechaun probably before I would watch Valentine's Day again, but it really is a nice, I think like a once a year on Valentine's Day. It's like a nice revisit. Yeah, it's it's love actually at Valentine's Day. So That's right. All right. Now today, Jake, what movie are we going to be covering? Network. Network is from 1976. It has Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch, and Robert Duvall, and a slew of other great actors in here. Its budget was only $3.8 million. It grosses $2.7 million domestically, putting it at 19th on the box office. It comes in behind Logan's Run and just ahead of Across the Great Divide. Number one movie from 1976 was Rocky. IMDb gives Network an 8.1. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes love this. It's 92%. And the audience score of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 93%. So even higher than the IMDb rating. Academy Awards, four-time winner. Best actor to Peter Finch, who had died when he received this. Best actress to Faye Dunaway. Best supporting actress to Beatrice Strait. Best screenplay to Patty Chafsky. So it is nominated for six more for Best Picture, Best Director, uh, Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Editing. It is a four-time Golden Globes winner, nominated for one more. It is a BAFTA winner, nominated for eight other BAFTAs, and a Saturn Award nominee. And AFI distinctions here. 1998, AFI announced that Network was number 64 on the top 100 movies of all time. They revisited again 10 years later, and they gave it number 66, so it pretty much held steady there. And and the top 100 movie quotes, it has two of them. Sorry, it has one of them. It is, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore at number 19 overall. So it was even nominated for the top 100 laughs and nominated for best villains with Diana's character. Now, Jake, there's clearly a lot of clout. It, it took home a lot of hardware and at the time and it seems to be holding up with his legacy now. Had you seen Network, and what was your background with it? I first saw Network uh, maybe about 12 or so years ago, and it was, you know, obviously Peter Finch's uh, performance as Howard Beale, the the kind of techno-future that Chayefsky uh, wrote into the screenplay. You know, it's one of those movies that have kind of uh, become more real over time, more true. So it's interesting kind of uh, coming back to the movie, you know, uh, written in the 70s and uh, kind of seeing what Chayefsky was talking about then and uh, where we are now with, um, of course, the 24-hour news cycle and uh, the expansion of social media and, and all that. Do you feel like 12 years had changed it coming back to you, uh, looking at it? And obviously, you probably studied it a little more closely this time, but... Was there a change in how you were viewing it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first time around, it was through the lens of uh, Howard Beale and how he was kind of uh, experiencing his role with the network. But this time around, I think what stood out to me more was the dynamic between Max and Diane, Diana and seeing how their relationship, their character dynamic, was kind of the story within the story, you know, because of 
Howard Beale's character and how um, larger than than life he becomes in in that narrative of of media. You know, that's that's kind of the top line I think to the to the movie. But this underlying narrative between Max and Diana, I think, um, is more interesting on the second viewing. Yeah. Now, Lizzie, had you seen Network before? No. So I had never, I never even heard of this movie before. I feel like I'm, you know, losing my my movie buff card by admitting that, that I had never even heard of Network before. So I felt like a big dummy when I was, when I first started it, because as you just, as you just read, Russell, it, it's a very decorated movie. So I, I was went in with great expectations. Now, the last time that I watched a movie for this podcast where I had not seen it before was Killers. And I never watched a trailer. I just pressed play. And I really enjoyed that process. I did that with Network. And I kind of wish that I would have watched the trailer in retrospect. My first impression of this movie was everybody was just so loud and so angry that I was a little overwhelmed by it. So my first viewing of this movie was just, I don't know how to keep up with like, everybody's just screaming at each other. And I I don't know quite how to follow what's going on because everybody's just so pissed off and this person's yelling at that person and there it's just it was a little hard for me to follow I remember specifically messaging Russell and saying yikes as I was watching it I decided to watch it a second time with the expectation there's going to be a lot of yelling and the second time that I watched it I was able to absorb the dialogue and the message and really understand the the movie in and of itself the second time around I have to say I did really enjoy and I think that there's a lot of really thought-provoking provoking conversation that can come from that because like you said it's kind of quite prophetic in a way of like seeing how things are leading with in even in the 70s kind of understanding how people are taking news that they're receiving from the television and they're taking it as gospel truth and how scary that can be and seeing how much that is true today even more so i really enjoyed the overall concept of the movie and i'm gonna echo a lot of those things i had not seen this before i was aware of it and i knew it was one of those movies i needed to get to i'm not going to lie the news is not something i get excited for i am not I'm not one of those followers of the 24 hour news cycle. I, I, in fact, I think I've watched the news less and less as I grow older. Uh, you know, I think I feel like other people give me my news enough. It's like other people were the filter where they're like, Hey, did you see that? And I'm like, does it sound interesting? You know? So, and then, and then you're like, uh, you gauge, okay, well maybe I'll look up a news story for that. But I, I actually rely on other people around me to filter the news for me to see if it's significant enough. But uh, so no, I wasn't that drawn to this movie initially uh similar to broadcast news last year when we covered that that's uh, that's another one of those movies that is about the news industry and that's one of those movies that i had to warm up to as well so like lizzie i watched this the first time my first thoughts are this is pretty funny like this is not what i was expecting i was expecting a hard-hitting drama with like people people getting emotionally invested and stuff like that and you do have some of that but i did not expect this to go as dark as it did 
because about halfway through you're like well this isn't a joke anymore and it, it got heavy <laughs> it got really heavy and then obviously yes. um as the movie got heavier and heavier i started to be put off by it and i was like what did i like kind of lizzie said what did i just watch it wasn't so much the yelling for me but it was just like how i was like we started here and we finished here and i don't know how i can reconcile all that <laughs> so yeah it's good we actually ended up delaying our recording. What it did was it gave me enough time to watch it incomplete. Not just because I, when I take notes, I pause and it, it chops it up for the second time. Usually I watch it first just to watch it. And then I, then I study it. So it gave me another time to actually sit down and watch it in full. And I have to say more than any other movie I think we've covered, certainly in recent history, I think this was helped by additional viewings so that you can chew on those concepts there. And it does help to know that it's going to get dark. It does help in Lizzie's case to know that there's going to be screaming. And once you know what you're in for and you're primed, it, it therefore makes you more prepared to, to take in what it is. So watch yeah, it twice. Is my advice. Yeah. And I, I want to take that last point that you made of like how you're sitting there and you're thinking like, you know, this is kind of a joke. And then all of a sudden it got very serious. I think Howard Beale, experience that same thing right whenever he's sitting in front of arthur jensen in that boardroom across the table and he's <laughs> you know that that five minute performance by uh, ned betty that got him the oscar nod and he kind of realized like you know this is a little more serious than uh he may have realized yeah and we're about to get into some, some serious conversation about this. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen Network, I don't think this is a movie you want spoiled for you. So be forewarned. Watch it. If you were off put, watch it twice and then come back and listen to this podcast. <laughs> we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. And for those of you who haven't seen Network, this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Lizzie, for those who haven't seen Network since 1976, would you like to refresh people's memories? Howard Beale, the longtime anchor of UBS Evening News, has recently learned from his news division president, Max Schumacher, that he's being let go because the ratings are dropping. That night, the two old friends get drunk and lament the politics of their industry and of UBS. The following night, Howard is live on air discussing his firing and announces on live television that he's going to commit suicide on next Tuesday's broadcast. UBS fires him on the spot. Max, however, believing Howard should have a dignified exit from years of service to UBS, convinces the execs to allow Howard to appear one last time to apologize and give a final farewell. 
Howard later takes front and center to address his earlier rant, but once on the air, he launches right back into a diatribe that life is BS. At first, the executives are panicked until they notice that the ratings are going through the roof. UBS and Max, although horrified, see an opportunity to exploit Howard and offer him to continue his live outbursts. This proves to be a success as Howard is able to galvanize the country, enraging them, and viewers shout out loud their windows, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Meanwhile, Diana Christensen heads the network's programming department. She's looking for the next hit show and feels convinced that it's in connecting with the fear and rage of the viewers. Diana catches wind of Howard's new style and quickly approaches Max to offer her help to develop the show, along with a sassy premonition that the two of them will become emotionally involved. Max declines the professional offer, but indulges in the personal, and the two begin an affair. Later, Max's conscience kicks in when he attempts to end Howard's angry man format. But before he can, Diana swoops in and persuades her boss, Frank Hackett, to slot the evening news show under the entertainment division so she can run it. Howard's new show is debuted as the Howard Beale Show, topped billed as the mad prophet of the airwaves, and the show quickly becomes the most highly rated TV program. Howard, now a celebrity, is preaching his angry message in front of a live studio audience that on cue chants his signature catchphrase, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take this anymore. Howard soon makes the discovery that Communications Corporation of America, CCA, the conglomerate that owns UBS, will be bought out by an even larger Saudi Arabian conglomerate. Howard is heated by the news and quickly launches in an on-screen tirade against the deal, encouraging viewers to send telegrams to the White House, telling them, I want the CCA deal stopped now. Now, the network is in a state of panic as the angry man prophet yelling at all the hypocrisy in the world works until the angry man turns the spotlight on them. This deal is essential for the financial survival of the network, so the executives try and persuade Howard to abandon the populist message and acknowledge the world is a business, not a world made up of countries and democracies, but one large system with an ebb and flow that funnels through big businesses. Howard obliges, only audiences find his new sermons on the dehumanization of society depressing, and ratings begin to slide, bringing Howard back to square one. Diana and the executives see a dark opportunity to solve their ratings problem and get rid of Howard. They decide to assassinate Howard on air. They are successful and put an end to the Howard Beale show. The film ends with a narrator stating, This was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy ratings. Wow. So as you can see, even in the, how you're delivering it, there's a big shift as we go through here. So uh, this is a screenplay or by Patty Chayefsky. And Patty Chasky was one of the big TV writers from the 1950s, and he had become disillusioned with the industry that he was working in. And so much of these great cast members were drawn to it through him. But it's interesting how prophetic Chayefsky's, what he saw that focused him to be able to write this. It's amazing. There was a case in Sarasota, Florida. There was a woman named Christine Chubuck, who was an anchor woman. And she had like depression and loneliness and she shot herself on camera as stunned viewers watched in 74, a little bit before this. 
Now, Chayefsky didn't say that it was specifically this that influenced him. It's not specifically clear. However, there are parallels to this for sure that, that clearly go into here. And it does show you, gosh, TV ratings drive things so much so that news or what's good for people or society or integrity of broadcasting, none of it matters compared to the feast for ratings and what you want. And so it is sobering. It's amazing how much humor there is in this, but it's the same time. It's ridiculously sad. It wasn't taken seriously at the time by many people. There was written off by a lot of news people saying like, this couldn't happen. But in so it's, it's really eerie how real it is that basically everything short of actually assassinating somebody on screen. It's amazing how much of this has come to fruition as Jake alluded to. Yeah, it's I mean, I think it's wild to think of how spot on he was, you know, 40 years ago. But I think the one thing that kind of makes me realize that, you know, perhaps he knew is because the general concept of when you are spending your life chasing all the wrong things, it's never enough. And I think that that possibly was what he was holding on to is this idea of seeing glimpses of that during his time in the 70s and then realizing like at this rate, almost almost speaking to the public as if we're almost a little bit supposed to be Diana somewhat speaking metaphorically is this idea of like you chasing this idea to want to connect with fear and rage and you know when you those are your driving emotions you're never nothing will ever satiate that thirst and I think it's it's so true and nothing is more clear than the state of our culture today I mean it's just never enough and there's always something to be angry about always something to be terrified over and it's constant because now it's in the palm of our hands Jake, does this feel almost surreal? We're all, each of us talking here are younger. We were born after, the, well, after this movie was made. So by the time we're getting to it, it's basically already come to fruition. It's hard to, it's hard for us to take a moment, which is why multiple viewings help to put yourself back in that position. But what's it like getting it basically almost after everything's come true? Yeah, I think on the the second viewing, I I was really seeing the the story of relevancy and the struggle to stay relevant and what some people do to be relevant. And I think that's why the relationship between uh, Diana and Max really stuck out to me. You know, Max was uh, somebody towards the end of his career. He saw his longtime friend and Howard Beale lose some sort of uh, humanity that Max was able to hold on to, even though that he made some choices, although conscious, to be uh, unfaithful. And, you know, I felt like his character did know that he was making bad decisions, but he did them anyway. And, you know, you have somebody like Diana, who is early in her career. She's a part of a new era. There's only, uh, you know, the, the ceiling is, is high for her. She'll, she'll do anything to keep moving up the ladder and losing some of her humanity in the process of that. So the dynamic of, of re- relevancy between those two characters that, you know, maybe Max saw something in her 
to keep him relevant, but Diana, having seen Max lecture as a student, you know, has some kind of legitimacy that maybe she hasn't attained yet, being so early in her career. What's interesting is their dynamic in the sense that you, she's so focused on her career and she's great at it, but at the cost of really becoming a shell of a human being. Like she has no conscience, no really driving personal motivation for herself. Like there's that one scene where Max and her are having dinner and Max is like trying to describe what he needs in a relationship. And honestly, like what he, he's just asking for like your kind of basic relational needs. And she's like, I don't know how to do that. And it's it's really interesting because kind of, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, like I just think if your mind's not in the right place, you're just kind of chasing all of the wrong things. She doesn't even really know how to function outside of this world of capturing tragedy for ratings. You know, she doesn't actually know how to be a person. I think one thing that really put me off the first time was there was no one to anchor yourself to root for. So at first you think, all right, I'm down with Howard, as as maybe Jake had alluded to. But he's legitimately slipping into insanity. Like, he's losing it. And I think there's a scene where he wakes up and has a premonition view, and you're just like, oh. Like, you know, he's he's a suffering alcoholic. He's, he's depressed. And I think it was a very telling line when Max says, he needs help. And you're just putting him on TV and parading him around for exploiting him for his ratings. And I was like, God, ah, that's pretty sad. It's totally true. So then you're like, well, Max is the voice of reason in this case. But Max ends up in this affair. The first time I watched this, it was just like, I really hated that. I, I just, I hated watching it. I didn't, I mean, I actually initially, when Diana first came on, I actually kind of liked how, you know, what ambition she had coming up in a man's world. And like, you know, I, I liked her ambition and I liked her energy. And, you know, she was going to shake it up a little bit. And, you know, this this network was on its heels and she had some ideas to make it better but just where it went like you said lizzie it's just blind ambition and when it's blind then obviously people are getting hurt and there's you just get lost in it and so she obviously throughout the movie becomes more and more villainous as uh i think she was nominated for an afi top 100 villain i get that so i lost her in the process and then max is falling for her you know made me you know watching beatrice straight just the hurt of having been betrayed like that it really became hard to come back to max and later on i saw that max represents the way of doing things before and the way that the news had integrity and i'm off i'm running my news at a deficit and that's okay we lose money we tell the news that's what we're here to do and we're not here to entertain necessarily and Diana represents this world that comes in and says everything on TV is show business and you have to have some presentation. You have to have some showmanship and I'm going to take this over so I can get some ratings and we're going to save this network and we're going to fix the news by programming it. And as you alluded to, Patty Chayefsky saw Watergate in Vietnam, things that were happening on TV and people didn't want happy. They wanted angry and boy, we sure got that in spades. Patty was really prophetic in seeing that. So um, what I'm saying is they took away everybody to root for, in my opinion. 
And that, that normally leaves me in a rough spot, which is why I had to come back to it again to say, like, this is saying something bigger. Diana's like her affair with him is, in a way, this feast of ratings and the showmanship. It, it seduces the old way of doing things of saying we're going to tell the news. She takes in the integrity of the news world, which is what Max represents. And destroys it in the process. I had a hard time seeing that the first time. I was just taking these as characters. And I had a hard time seeing Max do that. But unfortunately, that destruction of that way of thinking. And her bringing him to his detriment. He loses his family. She's empty. Like, once he goes for her, there's nothing much there. I like that statement. Which is why you had to stop and see what those two characters represent. And maybe... I'm reading too far into those two things, but that brought me around to it a lot more. And it's just, it's not a happy story. But I think what happened in our media, world of media, is not really a happy story. He's not seeing the truth for what it is, right? Like, the truth is that he has a marriage, and this woman loves her, loves him, and is devoted and faithful. And he's leaving for, like, the razzle-dazzle and the sparkly. And that you could almost kind of use that as a metaphor for if Max really is the news, then kind of going from what is true to what is exciting. And um, and just kind of seeing how that can be destructive. Beatrice Strait needed to, needed to join the First Wives Club after this, which we... You brought to us. Oh, last she year sure did. So. She should have. She should have. Diane Keaton would have opened her with or welcomed her with open arms. Man, it's a that was a raw moment. That one hit me hard too. I gotta agree with you a hundred percent. I get why she got an Oscar. It's the shortest time on screen to get an Oscar, but whew, it packed a punch. Yeah, it really did. I don't know. I mean that that scene was Like, it's really hard to watch. You kind of said it perfectly, Russell. Like, it's really hard to watch a movie when everybody is very unlikable. (laughs) It's really hard to find. Like, you're kind of pulling at each character to be like, what can I find likable about you so that I can have just root for you in some small way, shape, and form? And I really, really wanted to root for Max. Even with the affair, I'm... I was not for it, but in my mind, I'm like, maybe he's going to have some kind of like redemptive arc. And then in that moment, when he breaks the news to his wife and is so like, no, this is the situation. Like, I I love her. Oh, that was really, really tough to watch as a wife and just as a person. It was it was hard to watch. Yeah, yeah. That's part of the story, too. Like, even just broadly thinking of Max as a as a stand in for for a viewer of media and, and Diana just more broadly as media and seeing how something that is that is kind of verbose and exciting can I guess manipulate and make you make bad choices even though you you know that it may not be good for you. But just kind of that in, that encompassing allure of 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 media and, and the kind of narrative of, of manipulation for sure i mean well one one of the best lines this is towards the end where like howard's famous at this point he's got a show and he's like you know you want the truth go to god go to your gurus and go to yourselves he's like you will never ever get the truth from us and 
I, I found that so interesting because ta- in the sense of like this conversation of what's like of it being so prophetic, it to me that rings truer now than it ever has before because you know now there's not just one news segment. There's news that is specifically curated for each political party. So if you're watching Fox News or CNN or whatever you're watching, it, you're, all of the information is being specifically filtered to give you information to support that news network's political agenda. So nothing is unbiased anymore. And it it's really scary to think that there are people who watch news and watch what they're getting off of the television and take it as just complete gospel and i do want to bring it back i mean i think subsequent viewings enabled me to still find the humor in there i'm I'm not prepared to laugh at basically a terrorist group being put on tv and an on on screen assassination but then you go back and you see how preposterous it is to have like horoscope wall street on tv and there is there are funny things and even in the moments where they're yelling i think there's a lot of humorous moments i i thought i would actually found myself laughing out loud for a few moments of you know a guy coming downstairs and like they want to put howard back on tv can you believe that and he's like whoa now that's that's my job maybe i maybe i don't mind being an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of modern times <laughs> They are ridiculous. They're borderline surreal. Like they are just so absurd, but everybody around them treats it with seriousness. And in that is lies something pretty funny. And in this case, there's no goofball necessarily, but the situation, the very premise of what Chayefsky's putting into words there. He wanted to write a comedy. And it was through his frustration that the content being on television, he said it was an indestructible, terrifying giant that's stronger than the government itself. And the screenplay just turned into this dark satire about the unstoppable news anchor and just a broadcasting company with viewing public all too happy to follow him to the brink of insanity i still see the moments of comedy in there and that is one of the things that draws me to it before i cast it off and say eh, nobody here's likable it it does so in a way even in those moments of yelling robert duvall is mean in this but there's moments where he just talks over somebody like he just says Ed, tell him what the ratings are doing. And as soon as he opens his mouth, he talks immediately over him. Like there's this character that in itself is so large and bombastic. It's funny. Lumet, the director, Sidney Lumet said, I wanted to get actors who were funny without being funny. I think he did that. Yeah, I think he did a great job. Probably I'd say the time that I laughed out loud was, you know, Jensen has given this huge monologue that I would say I mean honestly it felt Shakespearean and he's you know he's talking about how the world is just a big business and he's coming towards the very end you know he's made his point about how Howard is going to talk about the dehumanization of society and he's like then you will now preach this evangel and Howard's like well why me it's like well because you're on television dummy and I thought that part made me laugh because it is so true. Like, there really is no other reason why Howard, I mean, Howard hasn't necessarily earned anything, but he's on television. So it really doesn't matter what his credentials are. People are going to listen because he is on TV. And that's really all anybody else needs. They just need the face on the tube. It's not just Howard, though, is it, Jake? I mean, they they basically cozy up to a terrorist group. 
<laughs> for ratings. Yeah. And, and I think the, the 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 kind of peak absurdity in the whole movie is towards the end when they're all in the room and they're just they decide their only choice is is to kill him and nobody stood up and said I objected to it. It was just like they were having a conversation, you know, uh, at the water cooler. And I think I mean that's really what's interesting about the writing is that you could have these really absurd moments you could have these really emotional and and touching moments back to back you know scene to scene and a big picture idea i think here with the kind of dark comedy and absurdity of all of it is pointing towards that in itself like arthur jensen so that point where arthur jensen reveals the the whole plan behind it all and it's this global machine that no one person can stop or control, but points to how absurd that is because people created this system, right? If it's something that is so out of control, you know, it's something we ultimately created. So why could we not ever reel it back in? Like it's showing how, how ridiculous the whole structure is and also saying at the same time, we can't stop it, but they're created by people so couldn't we at any point bring it back into some kind of uh i don't know something based more in reality i think it's interesting too we could be seeing this happen a second time with the rise of social media i mean the the alphabet players you know facebook apple google i mean the the, the names are different it's not cbs abc fox and cbs and necessarily the the media has changed. I mean, you could even see in the presidential election of, I think when Trump ran, nobody projected him to win and he changed the system. Love him or hate him. The game was changed. He had a huge Twitter following and he used it. Whoever the can captivate whatever the media of the time is, whether it's radio, print, whether it's TV and now social media, the message or the voice piece is changing, but it's weird. Chayefsky might be right again in a format that hadn't even been born when he wrote this. Talk about double profound. And that's everything now. I mean, even in movies, it's being done now where you have, you know, you watch any Marvel movie and it's, it's like basically one gigantic Dr. Pepper ad. You know, it's it's all kind of... <laughs> being done where one company is feeding into the other and it's like this you know constant funnel so i i can understand what he's saying there is i think some truth to that but to your point jake that's a man-made system so if it if at any point we recognize that it needs to be reeled in it it's a wheel that we invented that we can break as well Let's talk about the cast here a little bit. This is an, this is a weighty cast. Now, Jake, what are some of the high points in this? I mean, this is a loaded cast. Even some of the minor players are being cast by some pretty big names. Sidney Lumet said in an interview, whenever you pick your list of people who you do want, there's other considerations. It doesn't mean that they didn't consider other people. But when they sit down, they figure out who they want to. Normally, you look down the list and there's third choices and fourth choices. Not network. He said they got everybody that they wanted once they sat down and figured out who it was. That's unusual. And he said it shows. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's really difficult 
to pick, you know, you have two actors on this list that appeared on film for, you know, around five minutes and one won an Oscar and one was nominated for an Oscar. So as far as getting the best performances out of our actors and actresses, really got great performances out of everybody. You know, even the, the young Robert Duvall as kind of one dimensional as his character was and, and and silly almost in in his anger and rage that he displayed on screen was still interesting to to see and evolve. But I I think you know we've been talking about how important it is to maybe watch this movie multiple times. I think because you get such great performances of the entire cast, you could follow each character's story, you know, that, that rewatch value, I guess, and have a different experience. Peter Fitch kind of steals the show. And it's funny. He almost uh, talked himself out of it. At one point, the, his talent manager, Barry Cross, reaches out to the producer, Howard Godfrey. He didn't necessarily think much about the Howard Beale character, but he, he sends it along to his client, Peter Finch. And Peter Finch hang, hangs up on Barry Cross's manager when he was told he had to audition. So it almost didn't happen right that. But at <laughs> least... Uh, Peter Finch regained, he said, uh, he, he called his manager back and said, I'm sorry, darling. I forgot I was an actor. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, I just, I find that that's funny. And, and I got to say, it's really interesting. I think he exhibits an enormous change and transformation of his character throughout. And he takes you on a big roller coaster, which is a hard thing to do. And exhibits in a wide range of performances. And Lumet mentions that you should cast for the third act. So you, you cast the madman, but he's so good at it all. I got to say, I'm not as adept with Peter Finch's work. He's acclaimed and he was a heavyweight coming in here. But after this, I, I find myself wanting to see more from Peter Finch. The first time watching it, it was tough for me because I'm such a character development kind of gal that it was really tough for me as I stated before, because there's just so much yelling. It was hard for me to be able to really slow down and really make kind of connection as to what's happening with these characters. Who, why is everybody angry? And I, um, I think the second time watching it, it really helped. Like I had the expectation set of what kind of environment I was walking into and it, it just allowed me to kind of diffuse all of like the hyper, like the hypertension and just kind of focus on the characters and what everybody is saying and the kind of flow of their relationships. And I think the actors, honestly, like I was talking about this with my husband, how like, I think that kind of like really passionate acting was also like really par for the course for the time. So I think in, in, as far as understanding the assignment, I think they, they all got it right. It's interesting to your point that it's confusing also. They don't, Shasky doesn't spoon feed you exposition. You don't get if spoon fed on who the hierarchy is, who's who's boss, how this industry works. I don't work in TV. This whole world's pretty foreign to me. But I kind of get it as you go along. And other viewings help that out a fair bit. And when you're watching it the first time, to Lizzie's point, they don't condescend. Like, they're moving and they're bringing people in and out. And yes, there's plenty of yelling and things are high stakes. So it it's not only that either. It's how it's in the writing. 
which I think is smart writing. It's good writing, but it can be confusing, to your point. I was confused when, like, wait, who's Mr. Ruddy's boss? Uh, wait, who's William Duvall? Like, this president of the company is just sitting around mumbling and seemingly very timid. Why is that? And it takes you a while to realize that this news network has been bought out by a large company and the rules of the game are changing. Yeah, you're, you're kind of dropped into this world, this kind of uh, high stakes, fast moving world. And, you know, it, it's evolving. And, you know, the first scene of the movie, you're seeing that you're, you're kind of dropped into this timeline and building these characters who, um, you know, in contrast to Howard, it, it takes somebody who's kind of losing his mind to be the truth sayer. So, you know, kind of asks you, like, in this world that Lamette and Chayefsky uh, built for the film, like, who are the, the mad ones in there? You know, is it Diana and um, all these uh, new hotshots that are coming in and changing the game? Or is it kind of this uh, old guard who is holding on to something that you know, is ultimately fleeting? I thought it was interesting that there's some concern about the combination of William Holden and Faye Dunaway. They had worked together in the Towering Inferno. And according to bi the biographer, Bob Thomas, Holden had been incensed by Dunaway's behavior during filming. It was a disaster epic. And uh, just a, she would have a habit of leaving him on stage while just going off and doing hair, makeup, telephone calls and walking off. So they'd get into these arguments and she'd walk off, for, but for hours. And it would really hold up filming. And they were really grating on each other. They had a rough go. So I find it very interesting that somebody said, let's bring them both back and do this. I think another sad one is just Peter Finch. I mean, when they shot the um, I'm mad as hell scene, there's two clips in that. And the first one, the first clip is from a second take. The first one is from another take. And so there's two takes and it's they take half and half and they, they use a cutaway to do it. But when he did it a second time, he 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 like was incapacitated, which is a foreshadowing that he was having health problems. And sure enough, Lumet and Finch, you know, they were going to meet in the lobby and Finch collapsed and was taken to a hospital and he was pronounced dead after some time in the ICU. So it's it's I know it's one of the sad stories of Peter's Peter's at the end of his life here and he's laying an amazing performance down as he's doing it but so much so that he's he's incapacitated to do so none of this shows i mean it just seems so seamless there are natural places to cut the speech they did all of that on the first day of shooting talk about having to come in hot now ned Beatty gets an oscar for five minutes and 53 seconds beatrice Strait gets one for even less for five minutes and 42 seconds on screen now, Ned Beatty's nominated for an Oscar. Beatrice Strait gets the Oscar. I think you've brought up, we've, we've talked a fair bit about both of these already, but I mean, it's it's amazing that the writing gives that much credence to an actor that far down the cast list to come in and shake things up like that. They're good performances, but also the structure to be able to come in and do that on this ensemble cast is, there's something special about that. You couldn't just do that in another movie. If some someone can't just come in and win an Oscar in five minutes. Yeah, they do. They really hold their own. And like both of those scenes, 
are I, I would say honestly those scenes are the scenes that stick with me the most of the movie you know Jensen's big speech to Howard about the world being a big business and ebb and flow and then the scene with Beatrice where Max is confessing that he's been having an affair with Diana and that he's going to leave her for for Diana it's both of those scenes are so big and kind of going back it feels like all roads are are leading back to me talking about about all the yelling but I think those were scenes really where I I think that there's a, a really big difference to me between just straight up yelling like being loud and being impassioned and I think that sometimes I think there were moments where I felt like some of these actors are just being super loud but I think particularly those two scenes it's anger and yelling and raising voice their voices for the sake of like the passion that they have and in the moment and just being caught up in the moment and to me those were hands down the two scenes that stuck out to me the most in the, in a good way mm. and talking about diana she's just so cold-blooded and when sydney lumet reached out to faye dunaway to do it he even went to her ahead of time to make sure and lumet told her you're gonna ask where's her vulnerability well don't ask it she has none and if you try to sneak it in i'll get rid of it in the editing room so it'll be a wasted effort and dunaway uh his husband was saying i don't know you should take this role and but she plunged ahead and she went to it she committed to it 100 percent. she's more rewarded for it with an oscar and it's just interesting how the notion of an actor like you said to humanize her that wouldn't that would actually work against what the character is and this notion of like i said it's taking away the integrity of the news world itself and so she represents something that Chayefsky was writing to basically warn against and that's what the character was and it's interesting just how tight of a reign Chayefsky has on this he has a lot of clout it's amazing when you have a director like Lumet Chayefsky had final cut and he was incredibly controlling over how everything was done he's watching over Lumet's shoulder which I gotta say for Lumet's amount of credibility at this point it's impressive that he put up with it as much as he did, but he did so in a in a very healthy collaboration for the most part, of, from, from what it sounds like. But what that means is Lamed is really trying to translate what Chayefsky's writing directly, and that is that conveys directly to these characters. Chayefsky sat down with every single one of these people, explained to them how the news hierarchy works, explained to them how their character works, explained to them what their motivations were, and what their character is going through. This is not something a screenwriter normally gets to do and so the role of director here is being blurred heavily with the role of screenwriter they're very symbiotic in that way so and i'm not saying lamette's not to be credited by any means i'm just saying it's interesting how powerful chavsky is as a force in casting and as well as what these actors are doing so that was those were chavsky's desires that lamette was carrying out and telling dunaway no vulnerability She's fantastic. She's, I think, kind of in a way like one of the scarier villains that you see in in a film because she's 
this kind of character where she has absolutely zero conscience. And to me, that is the most dangerous person to deal with is like somebody that's just, I have one motive and I will just steamroll you if you're in my way. Like I have, and I have, will not lose a wink of sleep over it because that I have one motive and anything outside of that, I have blinders on to, and I just, I don't even see. She, it's very, very scary, but that's all juxtaposed with, you know, you think of all of that and you kind of envision, you know, if you're, if you're just describing Diana's character in just a very holistic, blanketed way, you're not, you're not really assigning a gender to her. I, I would almost assume that you're talking about like somebody like Jensen, right? Like just this like big executive man and I think to have it juxtaposed in the body of this really beautiful seductress and it's it's really interesting how how they're able to do that because you find yourself liking her and being drawn to her and you want her so badly to have this come to Jesus moment of clarity and she never does and it's uh it's it's really she she's an interesting one to watch. Yeah, and and whenever their relationship, I guess, was starting to form, whenever she came to his office, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm not sure if I buy this or like, what is her angle? Like, what what's actually developing here? Yeah. Now, Jake, we've talked about Lumet a little bit here, but. Where are some of the places that you really appreciate his impact here? And what are the things that you're seeing here that make you really go like, ah, this is well-directed? It's interesting. I think maybe this gets into cinematography and atmosphere a little bit. But, you know, the the only music in this movie is from the news clips, right? As far as how the cinematography, I think, evolves over the the movie, you know, Howard Beale, his show uh, changes, you know, we get, you know, it's really, really leaning on what the actors are saying and what they're saying to each other and how they're reacting to each other. Now, looking back, um, I had uh, watched 12 Angry Men um, not long before revisiting this movie. And, you know, that's a movie that takes place with a bunch of characters in a room. Um, and it's all such a good movie. Yeah, such a good movie. And we covered that one two years ago, and please go back and check that episode out because it is it's amazing. Go on, check. Absolutely, yeah. And um, of course, Dog Day Afternoon, another great lament film that is a love story that you didn't know <laughs> about until you know maybe the, the second third of the the movie, and just how to write convincing people, you know, even. Uh, in this movie, there's these people feel like caricatures, but there's there's real kind of emotions, you know, whether it be like pure rage or coming from Duvall's character or, you know, another reaction to characters. It's just, it's, it's being able to write good dialogue and, and interactions, I think, is really what stands out. A lot of that comes from Trasky. I mean, not only does he get an award here for a screenplay writer, but he's the only one to get it on his own for three. So the other two awards that he got were for Marty, 
1955 in the hospital in 1971. So he's highly decorated. So everybody wants to work with him to, to bring that in. But I got to say to your point, though, Jake, Lumet, we, we covered both the ones that you mentioned, Dog Day Afternoon and 12 Angry Men. And something that he did there that I thought was cool, 12 Angry Men is his first movie, but he does it here much later in his career. And apparently this is a method that he takes. He took all the actors. He took two weeks of acting uh, at, the, at the Hotel Diplomat in Times Square. No cameras. And it's like a stage play. Dry runs. Chevsky attended all of it with his vision intact. Lumet made a speech about what he wanted to do early on, like kind of a big vision piece. And then there's a table reading where they sit around a table and they would read the script to each other. And then Lumet would make location images and share those with people like to get a feel for what they were about to go into before they would actually go on site and they would then come in and scale tape down on the floor floor plans i know architect talk right now but they would make all the rooms and the furniture they had props readily available and they would make the scenes and they would take these dry runs and they would prepare to do this now lumet said uh, when other actors come in they say Mm, I don't know, you're going to kill a spontaneity here. And they're terrified because if they haven't worked on stage. But the truth is, he said, it's the opposite. They know exactly what they're doing. They know where the character, they are in the character. They know that they feel safe with him as a director and they come to get through this. They're so prepared that in the moment, if a plane goes by, they can choose to incorporate or act in it. But they are so in the moment of the situation, they're more secure. And if anything, it actually helps the spontaneity. And to go through that repetition, it gives you that kind of a moment as an actor to say, aha, I've got this sort of inkling about what's going on inside the character. It gives you more chance to respond and wear those shoes in the moment than to come in cold and to say, I'm going to have the spontaneity and discover it as an actor. It's really the opposite. I mean, talking about Anthony Hopkins earlier, he came in and didn't want to meet anybody and he wanted to get everybody's response to him in the moment. But Lumet's the opposite. He wanted to get everybody well-oiled like a machine. It pays dividends because he moves pretty quickly through production. He also doesn't make people do it 900 times either, like Stanley Kubrick would do. It's rare that he goes over four shots, They would, so the actors would say. And William Holden actually said, after a long career of acting, this is the thing that kind of made him feel like a real actor. And... It's just amazing. He he did this with each of these movies that you mentioned. It's just something that Sidney Lumet does. I have to admit, it's a very compelling way of making a movie because the character development in all three of these movies that you've mentioned is amazingly good. When watching this movie the second time, it really felt like I was watching a play. And I I really appreciated that in the sense that you know, Jake, you mentioned before, like, there's no, there's no music and there's no kind of, it, it's almost kind of funny just given the subject matter. There's no like big sparkly bright lights or anything that's super distracting. Like you're really just kind of focusing on the story and on the characters and on the dialogue more than anything else. And so I really appreciate that even the characters monologues are one ongoing scene where there's no kind of cut being called in between. And so I really enjoy his style in the sense that I, I think 
I imagine that he had a vision of wanting to create something that felt very Shakespearean in a way and given the subject matter of it being kind of this this tragic dark comedy and bringing it to the screen in, in a very theatrical way and it definitely resonated with me on the second watch one of the things that I want to talk about here is the environments are not very rich I didn't feel like this was I thought for the world of decadent news world and things like that, and it may be because this was the lesser of the companies, but Jake, I thought that we would be sitting in nice mahogany wood cladded walls and things like that. When we see Arthur Jensen's room, which is in the New York Public Library, New York City, in a library in New York City, the boardroom of that, I thought that that was what I was going to get more of. This felt really sterile and sad and everything was tan and oatmeal colored and black. Yeah, I don't think that there was anything in terms of, I mean, looking at a lot of, just going back to what I was saying, like looking at the the atmosphere and the wardrobe and you know, your special effects and even your music. I mean, I think that those were pieces that I think Lament, I have to imagine he intentionally designed it to not lean on those aspects and to just really focus on the no. story and the actors because I I got to be honest there was nothing really noteworthy in no. in those particular aspects of the movie for me they had some stock footage of Rockefeller Center and like the CBS building but I mean like that's about as New York characteristic we get a scene where Faye Dunaway and Max are walking on the sidewalks in New York it's very close they're shot closely we're in New York very inspiring place but you don't get a lot of sense of that you get she in, in her corner office you do a little bit and some of that is because they just shot in some tv studios in toronto but i am amazed that we don't feel the new yorkness of it all more so you're right it's it's very claustrophobic in that regard like hearkening back to post dog day afternoon and 12 angry men I, you know, sydney sydney likes to block out the outside world let the characters in the dialogue do the talking for it so i think that's a good point i think he's got a brand that i'm starting to pick up on here all right what do you say we hand out some superlatives let's do it all right mvp jake yeah i think i just have to keep going back to it i think it depends on how you're watching it and, and who you're watching i mean i think you said uh also that howard beale i mean that character, Peter Finch's, is incredible. If that's the kind of story that you're zoomed in on uh, for my second viewing, um, it, it was Max. And seeing the nuances of his character, you know, it, it, it's just, the characters are just so interesting. I think it, it, it depends on, on who you... Both of those players are nominated for Best Actor, by the way. So we didn't mention it. Yeah. Holden, Holden's nominated for Best Actor as well. Mm-hmm. Are you gonna pick one? Land on one? <laughs> and my second viewing was Max. Yeah, Max. Okay, Holden gets. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Lizzie? I put Faye Dunaway. I think that she, as an actress, just did such an amazing job because, like, she's so unlikable as a character, yet her way of being able to charm max you almost feel yourself kind of 
pulling into that and falling victim to that same charm. And the whole movie, I'm just sitting there just saying, okay, when is it going to happen? When are you going to come around and see the light? And the fact that she never does, even though it's frustrating, it almost kind of poetically perfect because she's just not supposed to. That's she's she's kind of evil personified. And so it's I just I think Faye Dunaway did a great job. She did. She really did. I was thinking Chayesky, but I have to admit what I said earlier really does stick with me. I didn't have a I didn't have a lightning rod. I didn't have anybody to connect me into this world. I, I never could connect with Max or Peter or Diana. And they're just so I'm not probably going to I probably won't go Chasky, even though the writing is amazing. I'm probably going to go with Peter Finch on this one. Uh, the guy who did get best actor. He just exhibits an amazing range and the transformation that his acting does. I'm really intrigued by him as an actor. And I want to see more. So Peter Finch. Best supporting actor, which is just as hard in this one. Jake. Yeah. I would go with um, Faye Dunaway in this one. In my second viewing, it's really just keyed into that relationship and, and what that story was being told between those two characters. All right. Lizzie, best supporting. All right. So, Jake, you and I are so far, we're switched. <laughs> so, this is where I uh, I put William Holden because I think we've talked about it before, uh, earlier, but I think. What I find so interesting about Max's character is that you can feel this tension of his struggle. He's trying so desperately to stay relevant, but he also is human and has a conscience and he's trying really hard to do the right thing as well. And so he's just, he's almost, you know, he uses Diana, I think, as the vessel, if you will, to kind of project all of his frustrations of his job and the media and love and kind of all the things her way. And she certainly has earned a lot of that. But I think in reality, he's at odds most of all with himself. And I think it's William Holden does a really good job because you you can sense that deep down he really does want to be the good guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My best supporting, I've got to go with Beatrice Strait. It's what what an amazing job she did as as Max's wife. Just she really did. It just uh, I've mentioned it three times or four times in this podcast, so I've probably covered it all at this point. But just resonating scene, I will remember that scene from this movie probably first and foremost. It's just amazing. So, um, hidden gem, Jake. Um, I I kind of, I really like the. Uh like newsroom actors you know, the, when they're behind the scenes of the cameras and you know at first whenever Howard Beale's character announces on air that he's going to kill himself and they all just kind of like not even paying attention and it's just it's just on the TV in the background and they're just kind of doing their job like well I guess not doing their job because they're not paying attention but they have kind of these moments of of, of reaction to what <laughs> Howard Beale is doing on air, you know, as his kind of character evolves into what it becomes. That um, it, it's 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 interesting. 
that was one of those laugh out loud moments when they're in the booth and he's going, what the F is he doing? And then he yeah. like, reads in the, like speaks into the microphone. What the F is he doing? And then the guy on the floor, like with the headphones on, like Howard, they want to know what the F is going on with you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I just thought that was so funny. Yeah. Oh. Uh, all right, Lizzie, head and jump. I put the actress, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, Conchata Farrell. She plays the role of Barbara, and I, Berta. yes, I love her. She's in Two and a Half Men, Mr. D's, and a lot more as, like, just that kind of funny comedic relief, and she has such a recognizable face, but more importantly, she has an extraordinarily recognizable voice, so the second she opened her mouth. I was like, oh my gosh, look how young she is. She's like a little baby on the screen. And so I, I'd never seen her in anything probably earlier than 2002 or three. So it was a treat to get to see her in her younger years. Her voice does it in too. Like she changes so much as she gets older, but her voice is just like, ah, yes. that's Berta. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was so funny too. When Faye Dunaway was like, did you read my memo? And they all just sit there and go like, uh, and Jake will laugh at this. I'm not always the best at keeping up with my email. So whenever someone works like, didn't you read the email? I'm like, mm, I have that feeling so often. <laughs> so I was like, aha, yes. People have been not reading the memos for, 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 for decades now. That makes me feel better. So <laughs> my hidden gem is going to be the discussion that comes from this. I have to admit, I don't think without having studied this, I don't think without having talked about this and prepared for this, I don't think I could have come to the appreciation for it that I have had. So if I had just watched it one time and put it down, I would probably be walking around saying this movie's overrated, but I've enjoyed it not because the movie's totally enjoyable and it's highly rewatchable and I want to do it again. It's because I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed studying this. And so I guess my hidden gem is just the conversation that kind of comes out of recast jake if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place who's it gonna be oh no that's a tough one <laughs> i know um, almost everybody I mean, gets a nomination <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's all great um performances uh yeah i don't know i think maybe the only character i wasn't totally convinced or on board with was maybe robert duvall's character and you know his his anger and seemed very kind of silly and childish at times but you know i think maybe that was the intention of his character um yeah so it's 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 hard to pick he goes big he goes big in apocalypse now too when we covered that but Mm -hmm. i i think that he represents that corporate pressure to yield profit to you know his job is to get profit slash viewers and so Diana speaks his language, and so he wants to come in and run things his way. And so I get, I, I, he, I think he's supposed to be hostile. I think Max's world is being turned upside down, and mm-hmm. obviously he's behind. He's even more behind it than Diana is. Diana is just the one that's like the instrument of destruction. He's he's happy to wield it. So, <laughs> Lizzie, who's your recast? So I think I would replace. Peter Finch. Now, to be fair, I'm only doing this because I have to. I wouldn't actually replace Peter Finch, 
But in terms of kind of playing around with who would be fun to replace him, I he was the first person that I thought of, mainly because, you know, Howard Beale's character is somebody that is galvanized the nation and he even he's descending into madness but yet he still got this likability to him where he's you know you you feel a little sorry for him you want to see him come out on top and so I really wanted to think about who of the time was somebody that I think that you just consistently root for and I came up with James Stewart. I feel like he does a pretty good job of, I think he could really get dramatic with the monologues. You know, like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I think he could get there. But I think he could also maintain a small sense of humility that Peter Finch also had that is just enough to really get you to want him to finish first. Well, he's... He's one of the best. I don't want to see him yeah. get assassinated. Again. I don't. I don't want. I don't want that for Jimmy. So nobody wants that for Jimmy. But I think he could. Uh, but I think he could do a really good job at the at the news part and all the and the Howard Beale show. You know who I felt in this movie got lost in everybody else's awesomeness is William Prince, the guy who plays Edward Ruddy. So this is this is Max's boss before he has a heart attack and Robert Duvall gets full control of everything i felt like he gets lost and he has hierarchy and he holds the presence fine but what if kurt douglas did that job maybe an overcast but he could be pretty awesome no i think that'd be a really fun cameo and he'd be a 62 by the way so like he's about the right age for it so um now best shot jake yeah i mean it has to be um Jensen's speech that really sets the tone for the last act of the movie. You know, of course, the performance got him an Oscar nomination. And the kind of limitations that they were put on the shot as well, you know, they weren't allowed to um, hang any lights. They weren't allowed to use any smoke or create any atmosphere. So, you know, they got creative with this down low shot, but pulled real far away down the table. And like was you're saying it, it it creates like an actor on stage you're watching this kind of shakespearean performance and kind of forcing the actor to project himself all the way across this table towards peter finch i think that that's the best shot for me that's mine too and those lamps the way that that has that forced perspective it makes it seem so powerful it's almost like entering in the the uh the Emerald Palace and Oz and like having this big head yell at you only it's Ned Beatty at the other end of it so um, it's a it's a powerful scene and it just shows makes you makes Peter feel so small in that mm-hmm. moment which is what you're supposed to feel so that's mine too by the way yeah and how his character changes uh, Ned's character changes from whenever they meet kind of in the lobby and he's very nice and as soon as that door closes, <laughs> it changes all the time. And uh, Lizzie, what's your best shot? Owen Roisman gets best cinematographer for the Oscars this year. So it's a movie of good shots. What's your top shot? You know, we're three for three. That was mine as well. I, I, Jake, I think you took the words right out of my mouth. It was like just the long table, that down shot. 
and then him being sandwiched in between the the rows of lamps it was so perfectly dramatic it's like he's giving a sermon almost it's just it was this very powerful scene i gotta give a nod to the i'm mad as hell broadcast as well the the emotion that comes from peter fenchin is amazing so what a moment to capture best scene jake yeah i think that's another one of those things that comes down to the viewing i really like i believe it's the first time howard beale comes out on his new show and he starts out announcing the president's death and he has that speech where you know he says that you know we're not what's real you're you people are what's real i think that that is the moment whenever Beale's character really kind of comes to the to to uh, top of of what his performance is on TV. It's a good run for sure. And Lizzie, best scene. I put the breakup scene between Max and his wife because that was uh, I said it before. I just it put a total pit in my stomach, and even though it's not the scene that you you know you look forward to watching like if i was doing a rewatch i would probably have you know i'd probably almost go into like a fight or flight anxious mode before watching that scene it's not a scene that you they cut to the next scene and you're not happy you kind of feel gutted but i think that's almost why it's the best scene for me is because it's just it's done so perfectly and it's a, they just they achieve exactly the emotions that they want you to feel. And both actors are just so amazing. And, you know, it starts off with Max kind of being very cold and almost a little businesslike of like, hey, this is the situation. You know, I've been having this affair and I'm in love with her and this is what's happening. And then it ends with you can see this kind of layer of friendship between the two of them. And it's just it's a really, really beautiful scene. It's super hard to watch, but it was one of the scenes that I think is hands down the most memorable. It is. That's that was my pick as well. So, uh, you guys are hard acts to follow. Jake and Jake and Lizzie still in the best shots and scenes all for me. So I'm just gonna <laughs> again just give another credit to the I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore scene. What a good scene that was too. It was fun to watch all of America open up their windows and yell that out in the streets and mm-hmm. uh, you know at this point i haven't come to totally dislike diana's character watching her say like wait people are digging this and you know watching william duvall like have this moment of like ah, this is working and it was a it was an electric scene and you're kind of at this point not aware of how destructive this will become for peter in some ways at that moment i was kind of like oh good he's landed on his feet he's found his stride and he's got this new thing and it's working and it, it doesn't feel that way upon following views, but it is such an energetic scene. So I'm gonna give I'm gonna give some very close second place to that one, but Lizzie took mine. Best wardrobe or makeup moment. It's deliciously seventies here. Peak seventies, if you will. I think nothing you know, we got all the earth tones to choose from here. You've got which shade of brown is is, is doing it for you? <laughs> Jake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, we're t- talking about, uh, you know, that style, and it, it's really nothing to take away from the characters' interactions. I don't know. Right. It, it's, 
it's hard to say. <laughs> you know, it, it like I don't. In that in that scene, that you, mm-hmm. in your favorite scene, I thought it was interesting that they switched Peter to having a almost minister type look. He's got the black jacket, black tie, mm-hmm. white. You know, like, and he's gone full out prophet. They have him behind a stained glass window and things like that. I think, I think tapping into your favorite scene, one of those things that maybe you didn't call out specifically about that though was there's a wardrobe change that this is where this is built up to. You had mentioned that this is the peak. Well, the wardrobe in reflects that as well mm-hmm. in that moment for your bit. In that moment for your it's a great point. Um, Lizzie, what what is uh, your favorite wardrobe or makeup moment? I actually put Diana's hair. I love that 70s look of like that feathery hair where it's just nice and fluffy. I think that that hair personally works in any decade, but particularly in the 70s, it, it hits. Yeah, I think uh, hair starts to get bigger in the 70s, but it's not until the 80s where we go, whoa, that's too far. Hair should not be that big. But the the volume of the 70s, I don't hate. I find something to be fun about it before it gets totally exaggerated. So you're right, she has great hair on that one. My best wardrobe is going to go to the great Ahmad Khan. He just says so as a terrorist, radical, revolutionary leader. Boy, this guy is so good. He's got this fuzzy, tall black hat. He's got a chain. He's got the long beard, army green coat. And sure enough, he's in like some bunker somewhere eating chicken when she comes in. I'm going to make you a TV star. What the F are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just, he's not on screen much, but what a big, bombastic character. And the wardrobe that they give him just makes you remember him to me. So, and shout out to Howard walking into a TV studio in like pajamas, wet and like crazed, and the guys in the <laughs> elevator room are just not even paying attention. I work in a TV building. I see a lot of weird stuff, man. So, and he just, he just walks right on set into live TV, wet out of the torrential rain, out of his bed. That is so funny. Yeah, I, I thought about that too because you know, there's I don't know if it's a callback or not, but you know, the twelve angry men and and what the rain does, you know, that's this moment whenever uh, Beale's character is kind of fully broken down, and you know, we see the the rain and him walking in, and yeah, you know, he's in his pajamas, he's covered <laughs> in water, but he has a a story that he needs to get out, and that's all that matters. Change one thing, Jake. For me, I think it it was maybe the last ten or fifteen minutes of the film. I know that there was some struggle for Chayefsky of of how to pull the story together at the end. Um, you know, because he built this world that there's this you know, multinational corporations controlling everything, and then you know, how do you kind of end such a such a big story or big idea that you know it, it felt a little hurried at the end there as far as how they deal with the information that was revealed in the boardroom scene and uh what they do with feel you know maybe i would like to see an extra 15 minutes for for that to play out okay yeah and lizzie change one thing so this probably isn't going to come as much as a surprise, but I would actually tone down with respect to some of the yelling scenes. I would take away 
all of the times that they take the Lord's name in vain in the movie. You know, I'm I'm a Christian, so there's that whole element where I don't particularly love that. But more importantly, I think that I found it really distracting when every other word is some type of blasphemy <laughs> where I'm just like, I'm starting to not really, I'm, and now I feel like I forget why you're actually angry because you're not really talking you're just screaming <laughs> i think uh you know the scenes particularly i would say when that happened the most was between executives you know i think when you're talking about a lot of the scenes that are between max and diana and you know when howard and and max are you know sometimes having their heated discussions and i think those scenes seem those particular scenes between like lovers and friends they seem to to hold more weight because it it's not necessarily you know a raise of a voice for for just the sake of it it's really to kind of fuel the the impassioned subject matter but i think a lot of the times when you're talking about the kind of conversations between the executives it felt a little it it just to me i think it was just distracting my first watch that was probably the the element that made it the hardest to follow second time around it was easier because i knew to expect it but that would just be something that I would change is to maybe dial down on that and refocus some of that dialogue to just kind of hone in on exactly what it is you're trying to say. Chevsky really focused on realistic dialogue. So they didn't, as I mentioned, they don't, there's no exposition in what they're doing. And similarly, they use acronyms, they use abbreviations, they talk. I think, unfortunately, what you're referring to, Dizzy, I think is somewhat accurate. I don't think... I don't think that's a world that you or I would enjoy sitting in, but I think there's some authenticity in that. Like you probably enjoy it. You're probably right. Yeah. I think those are actual people that exist that you don't want to hang out with. In fairness. (laughs) Yes. Um, I I would say that uh, it's probably true. Might change one thing is going to be, Maybe increase either Max's or just continue to point out that Beale is legitimately going crazy. I think I think that that would be really good to point out how much he's being exploited. He's seemingly okay with it, which, you know, again, he's under the influence. He's, he, you know, he's literally about to kill himself. You know, he would say the show's the one thing I got. So the need to be wanted. We don't dive into his psyche to hear like, you know, I've lost my wife and I, you know, all I wanted to do is just be wanted. And this is, it's, it's empty. It's hollow, but this is like my drug, like this fame that comes from TV. I feel like there's a conversation that could be had somehow where we gain some concern so that when he is destroyed, he is more of a tragic character. I'm asking you to hit me in the gut harder by doing so, but that's part of the tragedy. He's a tragic character. So Upping your concern for Peter, oh, sorry for um, for Howard, would do that. That's my that's my thought there. Best quote, Jake. Yeah, um, for me, uh, unfortunately, it it does include uh, <laughs> you know something we're too young to change. And but I think it speaks also to uh, what you're alluding to, Russell, as well as the character of Peter. And on the second viewing, for me really seeing all of these characters struggling for relevancy. And it's the last part of the Mattis Hell speech whenever he says, 
I'm a human being, my life has value. And that's how he ends that. And it's something that I think really just speaks to the core of the struggles of all these characters of them, you know, the dying character, like how far will she go um, to find relevancy and value in um, what she does and the decisions that Max is making and um, the decisions at the network to exploit Howard. Um, I just think that that's a really simple way of boiling down kind of what's what's happening throughout the movie. Excellent. Lizzie, best quote. So I put it's in the dialogue that Max is having with Diana. It's in their breakup scene. You know, they have kind of an they have a pretty amicable amicable breakup in the sense that I think they both just agree that they're not going to ever be able to give each other what they want. And and as they're arguing, Max says, you know, I'm the man that you presumably love. I'm a part of your life. I live here. I'm real. You can't switch to another station. And uh, I thought that was pretty poignant. And just given the subject matter, the fact that in Diana's world, everything is just based on what's going to get the best ratings, what's going to to get people to tune to tune in and watch. And this idea that Max is sitting here saying, I am real. I'm an actual person. You can't tweak me to get better ratings. You have to just love me and accept me for who I am. And it was kind of heartbreaking, but it, it was also a cathartic conversation because it's it's Max's breakthrough in a sense. And so it um, I liked that scene. Primal doubts and all. Yep. It reminded me of the scene in 50-50 when Bryce Dallas Howard's character is like, I thought I could do this, but I can't. I'm out. <laughs> to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, it's just like, oh, that hurts so bad. Just, nope. I can't. Um, and I can almost see Max like in a d- deleted scene going like, I didn't see it going that way. <laughs> Put it out there and she sent it back. All right. My favorite quote is, is going to be the AFI quote of I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So no, it's one of those things that I'll just remember from this one. Solid. And a runner up to runner up to uh, Faye Dunaway's character Diana going, now, I wouldn't interfere with the news itself, but TV is showbiz. And even the news has to have some showmanship. And you can almost, after you've watched this before, you're like, even just like the devil horns start to like come out of her head. Like, as she's saying that, like, this is where it begins. So, all right, Jake, big moment here. Half star intervals on a five star scale. What do you give Network from 1976? <laughs> I'd give it a four and a half. Yeah. I uh, just, you know, the characters are incredible. The writing's incredible, but you know, something that has been able to um, stand the test of time, or you know, has become more true over time. I think uh, definitely something that it does. All right, Lizzie, how about you? Five star scale. So I gave this movie a three point five because I feel like it is a movie that I think everybody should watch. It's thought-provoking it's a great conversational piece and it's a good opportunity to be able to as we talked about just kind of look inward and then all of that also to say that the 
the story itself, the way that the director has presented the characters and the dialogue in in the sense of, you know, these big dramatic monologues, it's it's all done really, really well. It's not perfect for me in the sense that I don't think that this is a movie that I will revisit. I think that it's kind of a one and done for me, or I guess in this case, it was a two and done because I watched it twice. But I think um, I I would recommend this to people because, again, I think it's important to have it in your repertoire of movies that you've watched. But this is not a, you know, I can just turn this on kind of whenever and maybe rewatch every year kind of a movie. This is this is uh, watch it, let it digest, and then uh, and then probably move on kind of movie for me. It's a fair statement. Yeah. And I, I'm going to go four stars. But as a conversational piece, I think it is a five star movie. Like what you were talking about. It's important. It's it's uh, it's very insightful. It's well made. It seems to check a lot of these boxes for five stars. But I think what's holding it back for me, why I personally will give it a four stars, is what you said. The rewatchability. I'm not going to sit there and go to everybody's like, you haven't seen Network? Hold the phone. Let's go yeah. get it right now. And let's watch yeah. it. To me, that's like what a five star movie talks about. Of like, It's important that you see this, man. Versus, oh, yeah, that's a great movie. And it, I, I get why it's on the AFI at 66. It's top 100 movies of all time. I'm glad I watched it. But. I think just personal enjoyment, not having that anchor to be able to say, I love this person in it, or I relate to that character. As I said to Lizzie, this is not a world I want to inhabit. I don't want to work at UBS with these people. So it's a little bit hard to be in this world. So, and that's why I get stalled at it for, I I think I'll admit it was a lot of fun to study and talk about though. So I think as a conversational piece, it's a five because there are many movies that I love that you can't talk about and have such a rich conversation about as we did. So weird way of putting it, I guess. All right. Lizzie, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Yes, let's do it. Our Oscar season is going to continue with three more Oscar nominated movies. Option one, Magnolia from 1999, an epic mosaic of interrelated characters in search of love, forgiveness and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. Option two, the wrestler from 2008 a faded professional wrestler must retire but finds his quest for new life outside of a ring a disputing struggle option three mulholland drive from 2001 after a car wreck on the winding mulholland drive renders a woman an amnesiac she and a perky hollywood hopeful search for clueless answers across the los angeles in a twisting venture beyond the dreams and reality okay Lizzie, so i have to admit i've never seen the wrestler so i think let's do that one it'll be a good excuse for me to give it a watch all right i don't i don't i haven't not seen this one either so i will just make a general wrestling statement of the macho man going oh yeah so <laughs> i don't think the macho man's in this one but I would say what movie wouldn't be better with the Macho Man. So, Jake, thank you so much for coming on. We loved having you on, man. Thank you. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. And thank you all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get those podcasts. Subscribe on our YouTube channel. It's mostly audio, but we're there. 
we like those subscriptions. They help us. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All of those contributions that we have are much appreciated and go towards making the show better for you. We don't just use them to rent movies. We put it into our awesome production to try and give you better sound, to make the show better, to get better guests and all these good things. So thank you so much. And as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? 60% of the time, it works every time.